The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. I was thinking about tonight's talk, and I thought, you know, the way to begin was about a word, a word that has stuck with me. You know, sometimes a word kind of jumps out of a I don't know, a talk, a speech, or something, and just sticks with you. And there's a word that has stuck with me, and this is a word, onward leading. It's a word that uh, teacher Joseph Goldstein has used in some of his books. And, you know, it just kind of stuck. Uh, he said, and I don't remember the details, the word remembered, but I remember he said, talking about our practice. It's onward leading. And the question came up for me, onward leading to what? And it seems to me it is a really important question. How is our practice onward leading? Mindfulness, kindness, ethical behavior, all of it. What does it mean that it is onward leading? What does it have to do with each of us? You know, I think that it's important that we have some kind of map, that you have some kind of map, each of us, in our head about where this is all going. Many of you spent lots and lots of time working, practicing mindfulness. And what is kind of inside? Where do you think, where is it going? Now, I'm sure that, you know, the word Buddha means awakened one. What's an awakened one? You know, what's our idea about a one awake? We don't have to feel that we're awakened, but what's your idea of an awakened one? So the Buddha said, and he was talking to a group of people called the Kalamas, and he told them in a really powerful statement, don't believe anything I say. He said, come find it true for yourself. Here's literally what he said. He said, don't go, do not go by oral tradition by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reason cogitation, by acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think this ascetic is our guru. But when, Kalamas, people he's talking to, but when you know for yourselves these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise. These things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to the welfare and happiness. Then you should live in accordance with them. I think it's a really clear statement, right? Doesn't leave much doubt as to what he's saying. Come and find it true for yourself. Know it for yourself. Not because you think it or wish it, but know it for yourself. And I think, you know, it's really fascinating because it puts the responsibility on each one of us. It's treating us like adults, right? You know, you've got to know for yourself. So what I wanted to do tonight um, is to not really provide a definitive answer as to where all of this is leading, but I would like to offer tonight some of what I've learned in the spot, well, in that line, where's, where's it all going? It's been an issue for me since, kind of since I began, like, what is this about? 
Now, I'm going to be sharing some things about my own path, and I will say my own struggles. And the point here is not to be, for me to be autobiographical. Uh, the point is, is, first of all, I find it personally really helpful when I hear other people share their stories. We've all got stories, right? And all of our stories are different. It's not like one story is good and the other is bad. They're all stories. I find it really, really helpful to hear other people's stories. It kind of normalizes mine, even if they're really different. And secondly, I'm going to be sharing, because I'm going to share with you what I understand is a general map as to what onward leading means. And again, um, this is not a definitive answer. This is my understanding as a result of my, my, uh, my path. What I, what's happened for me. And if some of it is not clear to you, don't worry. You know, just let it flow by. You know, you've got your path. It's not gonna be my path. So just inviting you to listen. So I will tell you that I started out in uh, formal spiritual training in Zen, Zen Buddhism. Uh, first, uh, there was a Korean Zen master uh, that I studied with and then, then went to live in a monastery, a Zen monastery in California where I was thinking that maybe I would ordain and become a monastic. Now, Zen has a very, and, and by the way, I have talked about my path here before. I'm not there, I'm gonna skip a lot of the details. It's not about the details. I'm trying to get to another point. Zen has a very different flavor from our tradition. Uh, the focus very much in Zen, a really heavy focus, is on the unconditioned, the formless, a lot, of, a lot of words for it, the primordial ground of being, emptiness. All of these are just words pointing in a direction of something that is hard to put into words, but a lot of your words have been used anyway, cosmic consciousness. It's a dimension of um, reality that we are absolutely necessarily blind to if we are focusing fully on and, and see our lives fully as being every day and in this world. You, this is another form of reality, transcendence. Transcendence. And uh, you know, we can be like fish in water. The fish, water is all there is, right? They don't know air. Hmm? For us, if we're focused fully on our everyday life, this is really what we know for ourselves as true. In Zen, there's a focus on something else, and that is transcendence. And then I will say that I know that some of you here have had experience with that. We'll call it in a, an awakening experience. It is something that I actually experienced before I became involved in formal Zen practice. It happened when I was in my 20s, and I wasn't a meditator, I wasn't, didn't know anything about contemplative practice, I wasn't involved in it at all, and it came and kind of sought me, it sought me out. It sought me out, and as I said, I've talked about it before, I'm not gonna go into detail now. I knew as much as, I was baffled by it. Um, I knew it was an awakening. And what is a spiritual awakening? And I can 
say certain things about what a spiritual awakening in fact is. It is an experience of transcendence. It is a shift in consciousness from our everyday reality. It's an awakening from our entrancement with our daily life as the sum total of reality and an awakening into a direct knowing that, whoo, there is another level. There's something else. Not instead, not better, but there is something else. There is something else. And maybe this actual experience, the shift in consciousness lasts for just a moment. Maybe it will last for longer than that. However short or however long, it radically changes one's understanding. It radically changes one's understanding because you suddenly know that you are not who or what you thought you were. You are not just the accumulation of all your experiences, which is how we kind of understand our life and who we are by the accumulation of all of our experiences, our life story. An awakening, a spiritual awakening, isn't limited uh, to Buddhist practitioners. And I can say that for sure because I'm a case in point. Uh, anyone, it's a human capability. It's a human capability. Um, moreover, you can't control if and when. It happens on its own. It happens on its own. But I will say, just to alert you, if you are involved in spiritual practice as we are here, then you're making yourself awakening prone. Let's put it that way. It's going to come, can come and get you. It can come and get you. Now, to, maybe to some of you say, uh, what, what in the world is this about? You know, it's not something that you necessarily understand. Maybe not even that interested in it. But I will say that if it sounds confusing to you, I can tell you that when it first let's say, happened, but confusing is a, minor, is a mild word for it, in my case, for me. Um, I had no context. I was in my early 20s, and in those days, believe me, it was a long time ago, nobody knew in those days what any of this was about. And as I said, I knew deeply. I, I called it to myself an awakening, but by golly, I couldn't express it. I couldn't say anything, and there was nobody to talk to. There was nobody I knew who, who understood it anyway. So I thought, boy, are you so lucky these days? So lucky. There's so many resources here. There's so many ways where you can reach out wherever you are in your spiritual practice, on your path. People are there to support you. Like, wow, isn't that wonderful? It is really wonderful. So for me, in, on mine, it just took me decades, to tell you the truth, of trying to figure out what this was. How did it fit into daily life? What, what should I do with it? And in fact, I can still, I'll say, I'm still exploring. It's not like I've got it all figured out. And maybe never will. And maybe that's not in the cards. I don't know. Um, I will just say that I won't pretend I have it all figured out. But I'll certainly share with you some of my experiences. And again, I want to say I'm sharing not because I just want to be, talk about myself. But first, I want to say that difficulties are part of this path. I've heard so many people say, oh, it's too hard, it's boring, it's, you know, we've got all our reasons why we don't want to meditate, why we, that's part of it. The struggle is part of, this is what we need to go through. That's what we need to go, that's the grist for the mill. That's how you awaken, it's not by doing what's easy. 
Hmm? Not by doing what's easy. So when it all, when, way back when I was in my early 20s, I tell you, I was totally naive. First of all, after this happened, and I had no idea how it came and got me or why, um, I thought, okay, I knew it was an awakening, and I said, okay, I guess people get one awakening a lifetime. This is kind of the thought I had. I thought, like, it's written in our DNA somewhere, or somewhere or other, that is one a lifetime, that's it, and after that, you're on your own, you've got to figure out what to do with, with all of that. Um, and then, and that's what I did for about, I'd say, 20 years. And then one day, I guess it was the right time, a book came into my life. It was called Zen Training, it's a classic. And it spoke about spiritual practice. And it was so intensely exciting. All of a sudden, I knew for the first time, I had to get into spiritual practice. You see, it was a revelation. I didn't know there was such a thing as practice. It never occurred to me that practice, that the, anything, had to be, that anything should be done, that there was practice. So I knew then I needed to get into spiritual practice and naturally I went to Zen, Zen first. Um, many, how, how to summarize, I'm sure all of us have our own stories about what you learn in spiritual practice, but as you do, but I just mentioned a few, and one of them, of course, was that, you know what, it's not just one awakening per lifetime, like some great hand up there in the sky is writing that down. Uh, who's to say what there is? But I will say that awakenings are, can, or these shifts can be from a major shift in consciousness to little bitty shifts. Insights, we call them. And I love the comment that uh, Zen Master Shunryu Suzuki said, when he said, this path consists of a thousand little moments that make one dance. I think that's so beautiful. A thousand little moments that make one dance. And I know that there are many of you here who dance often with this path. It's not all dancing, by the way. But yes, there is dancing as part of the path. Something else I learned early on, and that was the Buddha's first noble truth. The first noble truth is that there is suffering in life. I certainly understood what that was. I think we all do. And it became clear that the point the teachers were making is that we come to our spiritual path because there is suffering. Now, I will tell you, this made me very upset. It made me upset because although I knew that there was suffering, I thought, wait a minute, that's not my primary, that's not what is primarily motivating me. It's the spiritual yearning. I knew that for sure. I was yearning. I was being what I knew was being pulled into the path by yearning, not pushed by suffering. Now, I felt like an outsider. I felt like I wasn't being seen. These teachers that I heard speaking at the time uh, weren't addressing what was most compelling to me. You know, but why isn't spiritual yearning a noble truth? It's not. Huh, why not? And so, uh, to make a long story short, I eventually got over my upset, my anger, and decided, okay, well, being pushed by suffering is one noble truth, but also being pulled by spiritual yearning is another, is another. 
There are many stories. I began to gain, as I was in spiritual training in Zen, I began to get some kind of perspective on um, the dynamics, I guess you'd say, of spiritual awakening on the dynamics of spiritual awakening. I was so wrapped up, I had been so wrapped up in my story of my own awakening. You know, it's like so huge, like to me, this is big. So all of a sudden, as I practiced and began to mature a little bit in my training, I began to realize, whoa, you know, many different stories according to the individual. There's some amazing stories. These things happen to, and I will just say, ordinary people just like us, according to what we need to hear and how we can hear it. There are many, many different awakening stories. But I think there are only two kinds of awakening. And one is a uh, sudden awakening, where there's this sudden shift in consciousness. Uh, it strikes like lightning and is dramatic and where everything you knew is like, whoops, that's just not the way things are anymore. You realize a bigger context. It's, well, it produces or can produce a sudden awakening, a great deal of grief. Because suddenly you can lose your world as you knew it. I don't mean that the external circumstances change, but your understanding is no longer what you always understood. It's something different. And it's also kind of be frightening, like, now what? Where do we go from here? That can be a sudden awakening. A gradual awakening, as they say, can descend on us like mist. When you're involved in spiritual training, you already have a context for what all this is about. And so at some point, it begins to settle in. Oh yeah, I know that. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And so any combination of the two, gradual, spiritual, but that's kind of the way I think that it breaks down is my understanding. And then a further understanding. In Zen, when I was in Zen, I thought they heard the teachers referring to uh, awakening as, you know, kind of the end of the story, like your spiritual car kind of, reach the end, you can pull over the curb, stop, and that was it, and all was well, and there's nothing else to do. An awakening. Uh, well, I knew I hadn't come to the end of my story. I was still deeply involved in this whole thing. So, hmm, that became pretty interesting, and the reason why I knew that I was still involved, because here is the basic problem. After an awakening experience, Almost everybody, maybe there are one or two exceptions throughout history, I don't know. Almost everybody comes back to everyday life. And what's everyday life? Well, as we call it, 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Samsara, the computer problems. You know, the problems when you have, as I have a friend who today was telling me that all, what, what I was calling all systems failure, you know, the, the hot water went down, the this went down, the that, all at the same time. Well, we know what that is. You know, this is everyday life and we have to deal with it. And coming down from this place of awakening, which is experienced this in, in the moment of, it's just utter emptiness, formlessness, Emptiness doesn't sound so great to our ears, but perfection, utter spaciousness. 
then you come back down to everyday life and you've got your problems. Whether it's the hot water heater or your boss or your partner or whoever it is, there are all kinds of problems, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. So it's really confusing. And how do you reconcile the two? Our everyday life with this transcendence. How do you, how do you reconcile it? For me, it was a huge issue for years. Yeah, I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it that much. I didn't know enough to talk about it. Everybody else, many other people were talking on a different level. I didn't know what to, what, quite what to say. But I began doubting a lot about what I had experienced and began thinking, well, you know what? I need to try harder. Uh, I need to be a better meditator. I need to be an improved human being. And if I did all of that, and really tried harder, maybe I'd get a bit bigger and a better awakening experience, what happened to me, and then it would be permanent. That was kind of my understanding. And I think most of us can relate, even if it's not in this context, to this idea of not being enough. Hmm? I think on one level, we all kind of, at some point, and maybe frequently, can feel, oh, I'm so inadequate, I just am not enough. And I had that, I had that feeling. So I realized, basically, that an awakening, such as what I had experienced, and enlightenment, whatever that was, which I didn't know, were not the same thing. I didn't care what, what I was told in, by teachers, like awakening was used synonymously with enlightenment. There was something different about it. I was sure of that because traditionally enlightenment was presented, and this is how I initially heard it presented in Zen, as a permanent state of affairs. Enlightenment was what transcended time and space. Enlightenment was what we mm, experienced when we transcended our human life. When we got beyond our human life, we became, you can, might say, permanent residence in the primordial ground of being. You know, you can hear all this elevated talk and maybe some of you have, I don't know so much these days whether we talk, people talk about it. I haven't heard that, but I haven't been reading that stuff lately. But you know, that's how it used to be. Traditional, the traditional way of looking at it. It was permanent and it was transcendent, period. So, um, that's what I wanted when I started. There was this spiritual mountain and I was going to climb to the top. I was a seeker and I was gonna be a mountain climber. I was gonna, by golly, get there to the top of that mountain. That was it. I was determined to try it. But here is where mindfulness came in. In the uh, late 90s, I shifted my practice from Zen to Vipassana, to our tradition. By the way, our tradition is historically known as the Theravadan tradition, since I think some people, you know, this is kind of confusing. It's a tradition in Buddhism that is closest to the Buddha's original teaching. Vipassana is the name of the, of the meditation, mindfulness. We tend to call it mindfulness meditation. And another name for it is insight. I'm just telling you all of that to kind of clarify because there's fuzzy views about what it is all about or what the names are. So I shifted from Zen, easy, three letters, one word, you know, you got it, to our tradition. 
And I began to learn about mindfulness. And I will say, first of all, when I first heard about it, I really thought this was amazing. Zen focuses a lot on attention. It does that. But when I came to our tradition, I found that the meditations were so finely calibrated. I thought of them, and I kept using the term in my mind, they were like spiritual laser tools. That's what I thought about the mindfulness practice. And at the same time, um, I didn't initially appreciate them enough. I saw the fineness of their focus, but I had been focusing so much in my spiritual practice on transcendence that when we got to mindfulness, which is about here and now and experiencing the sensations in your body, you know, that seemed like, what's the connection? It seemed so far removed. You know, the part of the body scan that is done in MBSR, for example, it's noticing the physical sensations in your big toe. Well, that seems so far removed from transcendence, I had a really hard time kind of getting those two together. They seemed like they were mutually exclusive, transcendence on the one hand, and then the relative everyday world of mindfulness practice on the other hand. And it seemed, oh, how do they fit them? How do they fit together? Well, I would say in mindfulness practice, it didn't take me too long to recognize that, you know what, this practice really helps with stress. This was clear. You know, it can really reduce stress. It took me longer to realize, however, the greater point. Mindfulness practice and the greater point was is this is part of what I now understand enlightenment is, and I'm not claiming to be enlightened, but I understand that enlightenment is both the transcendent and the human path. It's not one, and it's not the other. It's both of them. They're not separate. And believe me, for me, I mean, this might sound like Boresville to you, but to me it was staggering to realize this, that these two, they're together, they're together. You know, in Zen, we quoted, we chanted once a day and sometimes twice, a scripture called the Heart Sutra, which is really quite beautiful. And the, a core understanding of the Heart Sutra is that farm is emptiness and emptiness is farm and emptiness is not different from farm and farm is not different than emptiness. It goes over and repeats that several times and I must have repeated it hundreds of times. But you know what? I never really got it until I was in this practice. Oh, because what is emptiness? Emptiness is the transcendent. What is farm? Farm is our everyday world and everything in it. You, me, the chairs, the mic, everything in it. That's farm. They're not one, as they said in Zen, and not two. They're not exactly the same, but they're not different at the same time. You know, the mind doesn't get that. What does that mean? But that's the whole point. That's the whole point. It is the everyday and the farm, of farm, our everyday world, and the transcendent, both. This is what enlightenment is. We are enlightened through our humanity and not in spite of it. You see, in Zen, the impression I got, 
or perhaps it was just my understanding, because I'm not going to say all Zen people had that elementary understanding that I had. They didn't. They're profoundly realized people in Zen. It's just that when I was there, I wasn't profoundly realized, that's all. It's just the way it was. So that uh, understood then that our, we're enlightened through our humanity. It's not to dismiss our humanity. So I think I'm going to give you just a little example, and this might sound... I've thought a lot about whether I should say this or not. Anyway, I will, um, because it might not be clear. Anyway, I was um, visited uh, some friends recently. And uh, they live out near the reservoir. And they have a beautiful, in a beautiful area, they have a, a lot of spaciousness, a lot of land around, a big lawn, a beautiful lake in the back, a beautiful home. And I realized that as I drove up and parked next to their, their uh, house, I was jealous. I said, wow, what a place. Wouldn't I love to live there? So because I practice mindfulness, you know, I was aware, whoa, this is jealousy. So what did I do? I, first of all, I recognized it and I accepted it. Yeah, this is jealousy. Um, and I investigated it in my body and I knew uh, that my solar plexus area had tightened up. And I also smiled. I smiled because it was so crazy that I was feeling jealousy at that moment. And the reason why I was crazy was because, you know what, if I had a choice, I wouldn't choose to live there. I'm trying to simplify. This was way too big, way too much for me. I wouldn't want it. And yet there I was sitting there, and it was just funny. You know, it just didn't make sense. So I realized that, you know, I was caught up. I was caught up in some ideas. I was caught up in longing. I wasn't caught up in the... Re I was out of the reality of my own life. So... I smiled, and I recognized that that was what I was experiencing. And I gave myself compassion. It's all right, sweetheart. This isn't a problem. And, you know, I, I tend to, as I've shared with you before, you know, I use an endearment. It makes the whole thing so much sweeter. It's okay, sweetheart. You know, this is all right. So all of that, many of you are familiar with. We've talked about rains here often, right? as a way of dealing with difficult emotions, R for recognize the difficult emotions, A for accepting it, not liking it necessarily, but it's there, it's true. I for investigating in the body. And I add an S on it, I'll come to the end in a second. I add an S and call it rains. The, the, the classic one is just rain. I add the S and I, when I teach it, I teach rains because S is for self-compassion. It's an incredibly important dimension. So this is what I was doing as I sat in that driveway, but then I did something else also. And that is the N in reins, which is usually the hardest one for people to get a handle on. And why? Because N stands for non-personal. You say, what? what's that? Well, when I, we, when I teach it in, for example, MBSR, as I do, um, I explain non-personal means, you know, it's not just your problem. Everybody experiences problems. You aren't alone. The universe isn't targeting you or me or any one of us. This is just human experience. We all have difficult emotions. N. That's on the relative everyday level. It is an explanation that can make sense to our relative mind. But the N also exists on another level. 
and that is on the level of transcendence. Non-personal, and here I will say that in on the transcendent level, there is no individuality. It's not, it, there's only the spaciousness. You say the isness, or as they've said, the primordial ground of being, whatever word you want, concept, cosmic consciousness. That's where the end can be understood to apply to. And as I sat in that driveway, I will just say, I recognize that as well. That was there. So in a way, in that moment, a little bitty example of how what I had recognized about both the human and the transcendent were coming together uh, at the same time. And this was, you know, really simple and quiet. It wasn't trumpets. It wasn't anything huge. It was just a simple, quiet little moment. And I'm sharing it with you for whatever it's worth. Maybe that sounds kind of prosaic, you know, sitting in a driveway. But it didn't feel totally prosaic. Let me put it that way. There was something more that was there. So um, I'm sharing with you some of the things that I have realized, and I will say that in the future, if and when I realize more, I'll share that with you too. But this is coming to what I feel I want to share right now. And I wanted to conclude with a couple of a few quotes with this idea that the human and the transcendent together this is what is onward leading, or where our path leads onward to. It's both. And if you haven't experienced the transcendent, no problem. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. The fact is, you are engaged in this path that's onward leading. Let it roll. You'll see what happens. And struggle with it, because you will. There will be. Hmm. So hopefully um, this will be kind of helpful and in the idea is to encourage you wherever you are on your path, all is well. One is not better than another. Each of us has our own individual path and we don't really choose it in the pro most profound way. And certain levels we do, but just to appreciate, wow, this is my path, whatever it has been. Some sound spectacular, some don't. Doesn't matter. It's yours. It's yours. So both dimensions and a few quotes that I think kind of epitomize that. Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, a 19th century, as most of you know, 19th century philosopher, great American. He said, the world globes itself in a drop of dew. That's it. In a simple dew drop. The whole world, all of transcendence, it's all there. Our Dogen, who was a 12th century Zen master, and he spoke about seeing the moon in a dewdrop. And he wasn't talking about the literal reflection of the moon in a dewdrop. It's not like you catch it on the camera and you see the reflection of the moon. He was talking about something much bigger, that all of it you know, can be seen in our little bitty every day, whatever it is. And finally, a story... Uh, from the Talmud, the ancient he Hebrew scripture, which speaks of the first light of dawn being when you see yourself in someone else's eyes. So in other words, the first light of dawn, and this isn't just literal now, he's talking on the level of awareness. The first light of dawn 
When you see yourself in the eyes of a complete stranger, of a homeless person, of a person of a different race or sexual orientation, it's not two and not one. It's not only that you can literally relate or are compassionate, but you are that other person on the level of transcendence. They are you because there's no you and no them. It's all the same, you see. So when you're seeing yourself in the eyes of another person, we forget that. I mean, certainly I forget that. We get very embedded in our lives. But there's a level in which we can profoundly know it at the same time. Confusing? Uh Uh-huh, it is. But I offer it to you for what it's worth, uh, confusing or not, and hope that maybe it has been a little bit um, helpful for you tonight. And I thank you for listening.